Welcome to Project Vox Populi, where the people speak their truth. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to the continuation of our premiere episode of Project Vox Populi, brought to you by Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I want to thank you for joining me for this first witness interview. If you haven't listened to the introduction of tonight's interview, I encourage you to stop this audio now and listen to it. It's available to everyone. Go to our website, VeritasRadio.com, and you will find it in the past shows section, which aired on May 15th, 2012. After you listen to that 30-minute summary, then return to tonight's interview. First, some background. What is Project Vox Populi? Vox Populi means voice of the people in Latin. Back in November 2008, I was compelled, pushed, convinced, fill in the blanks to embark on something that would change my life forever. And believe me, it has more than I could ever imagine. As you may have heard me mention before, without any experience or knowledge in broadcasting, I interviewed a man who kept a secret for over 50 years. Of course, I'm referring to Milton Torres. That's where the phrase, be skeptical, but don't close your mind, originated, and we have adopted it permanently. Milton Torres will always have a special place on Veritas. Although I have been privileged to interview a vast array of stellar guests, I have always felt that there is uncharted territory with the people. I'm referring to people who, more than likely, have never been given a platform to speak the truth in a way that allows them to share their stories in a dignified and respectful manner, without fanfare or censorship. It is now the people's turn to speak, and I'm proud and honored to begin with tonight's interview with our first witness, Walt Willis. When Veritas started, I never imagined it would become what it is today. The same invisible push that became the catalyst for Veritas and Milton Taurus is the same push that has created Project Vox Populi. We are all witnessing the inception of something new, something important, something that can and will help us connect more dots. Just to recap, Walt Willis and I have been in contact for over three years now. This is very reminiscent of my first Veritas interview. A few days ago, out of the blue, I felt compelled to place a telephone call to Walt Willis and asked him if he had a few minutes. Aside from what he and I have discussed for a few years, we have not spoken before. There was no preparation and no research, aside from what he had discussed in the past. What was supposed to be an informal few minutes became a three-hour interview, which is what you are about to listen to. To many, Walt's story will appear hard to believe, and although we have to always remain skeptical, we should do it with an open mind. Bear in mind that because we don't have commercial interruptions, I allowed Walt to expand as much as he could so we could experience his story in chronological order. Also, there were a few instances in which Walt did not want to discuss or release a few personal stories because they are of a very personal and emotional nature. However, Walt has agreed to keep the audio in its entirety, as is. I hope Walt's story will motivate and open the door to the many people out there who have an important story to tell and have been too afraid to come forward. Walt has already made it to our Manticore Forum, 
where he has answered a few questions, and we will continue discussing tonight's interview there. I have no doubt that you will have many questions, and Wald will be happy to answer them to the best of his ability there. If you are a Veritas member, you know where to find the forum. If you are not a forum member, simply follow the instructions to register. Walt has provided proper identification to me, and I can tell you he is who he says he is. However, even he cannot explain some of the information you will hear tonight. He has two main purposes in coming forward. One, he wanted his daughter and grandchildren to know his truth. And two, he wants to motivate others to come forward so he can further explain what he has gone through. With this being said, let Project Vox Populate begin. Just like Veritas, who knows where this will take us. I hope we can all get closer to the truth, and I thank you for being part of it. As always, please support Veritas by subscribing at VeritasRadio.com. This is the only way we can do this. If you have an important story to tell, and want to become a Project Vox Populate witness, we want to hear from you. Write to us at Vox Populi at VeritasRadio.com. That's V O X P O P U L I at VeritasRadio.com. We definitely want to hear from you. Thanks for joining me in this new journey. It is comforting to know that, unlike Veritas, where I started completely alone, this time you are all walking with me. Walt Willis, our very first witness is coming up next. This is Mel Fambergas, and you're listening to Project Vox Populi, brought to you by Veritas. Hello, this is Mel Fambergas from Veritas, and today... I have a very special guest. This is probably one of the first interviews I have done with somebody you are probably not familiar with. His name is Walter Willis. Hello, Walter. How are you? Good, Mel. How are you? Great, thanks. Uh, may I call you Walt? Sure. Well, you and I have been in touch with each other for at least over three years since I started Veritas. And throughout this Time, you have never deviated from your initial story. Back then, in 2009, I believe, I thought it would have been appropriate to start more contact and conduct an interview. But my gut feeling said no. And the reason why it said no is because at the time I was just starting. And I knew that it would be more appropriate to wait until the future, until perhaps there's a certain level of credibility and when I feel I have earned the respect of my listeners. I'm saying this in, in the most humble manner. And the people that I bring to the show, although sometimes you do your best when you do your vetting, sometimes it's not 100% guaranteed. But recently I had this feeling that I needed to contact you. So we made a connection once again. And I read a few days ago something you sent me. It was almost a legacy for your grandchildren. And I decided it was time for me to bring you on. And we debated if to keep your name anonymous. And I recommended to you to use your name because this is the best way to protect you. But without further ado, 
I would like you to do, introduce yourself to the audience first to say who you are, and then we can start in chronological order. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mel. Um, my name is Walt Willis, and um, I'm not going to give you a birth date, of course, but I will tell you this. Um, what I'm going to tell you is not going to be any extra other than what I know. And if I separate something from what I know to what I believe from what I've you know found out from other people, because the more I've told people my story, the more I get more information back from other folks that have been afraid to say anything for fear of recrimination. So uh, with that, I guess uh, you can... From what you read, you're welcome to um, pick my brain for more details, and I'll be happy to share that with you and your listening audience. Let's start from the beginning. First, you were with the military. Just a quick snippet. You left the military what year? Uh, July 26, 1969. And what branch of the military were you with? The United States Army. Okay. And your last rank was? Uh, PFC. Private first class. Okay. And your expertise acquired in the military, can you just talk a little bit about that? Oh, God, you were, I, don't know. I guess in boot camp, uh, then I went to AIT, and then I was duty, st- I got a month off to, for Christmas, then come uh, January 1st, I had to be in Germany, Freiburg, Germany, on uh, the 1st of um, 1968. I, I went there to through 69 when I was just, uh, separated from and rotated back to the United States. How long were you with the military? Uh, two years, draftee. Okay. Now let's go back to the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born in St. Francis Hospital in Wilmington, Delaware. And um, should I give the year? Sure. 47. <laughs> uh, what month? Don't tell me July. January. Okay. Hmm. January 47. Hmm. Okay. And did you live in a rural area in Delaware? Well, from there, we, my grandparents, my mother was born in Poland. So, and my grandparents um, had a farm in, on Blackston Farm in Delaware. And we lived there for the first 10 years, I guess. And I spent most of my summers down on the farm. It was a 410-acre farm in the middle of Delaware, just outside Smyrna or Clayton, Delaware, where um, I, I, w- I lived in this house that was built in 1684, two-story house. And, of course, living on a farm uh, without electricity or running water was kind of a, an interesting thing to spend for your first year. I learned a lot about uh, farm life and I had a cousin who was part Cherokee that he spent a lot of time down there teaching me about how Indians could make bow and arrows and canoes, and he always used me as a guinea pig <laughs> and taught me how to shoot. And I helped a lot on the farm while my uh, summer months were spent there. I Then we went moved to Wilmington itself in town. Okay. Now, you had a first experience. I can't use the word abduction because I don't know exactly what happened. But what happened? Strangest thing. It's the strangest thing I ever... Normally, when I was on a farm, I would be the first one up and I would take the kitchen stove and convert from coal back to wood, kindling, you know, tinder kindling, and get it going again for my grandmother to cook breakfast. 
being on the farm at that time, it was my grandfather and my grandmother. They would sleep downstairs in the middle of the house. So I would sleep upstairs on the west side. And, and I would be the first one up before the rooster crows. And they do crow about 4 a.m. before it gets late, actually. Hmm. It, and for some odd reason, I didn't get up that morning on time. But but I'll tell you what it was like when I went to bed that night. I, sl- I slept on my, on my back. And... Something made me wake up, either a noise or a premonition or something. And I woke, I just sat up, pitch black night. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. How old were you? I was about five or 10. I forget exactly. Okay. I wish I could remember better. But sitting up straight and I, and I first, I thought, what? You know, it's like it was a voice talked to me or a premonition, I guess you call it ESP. And I just sat straight up in bed with my covers up around my neck and I looked to the left into the other room, and there was a doorway. And lo and behold, I kept staring at that one spot, and I don't know why. And try to imagine translucent, from translucent, you know, like transparent to translucent and to solid. Mm-hmm. Three creatures became visible as they were kind of like floating right across the floor toward me. And the, like the wall around the door wasn't even didn't stop them. They just kind of kept becoming more more solid. And they came within, I'd say, two feet of the side of my bed. And by the time they got within four feet of the side of my bed, they became totally solid. The tall one in the middle was much taller than the other ones, more than the head head taller than the rest of them. The heads were just like you see the grays on TV, but they had more like a childlike face to them. And the, the, little, the little ones did. And the other one, tall one in the middle, I thought was like a ghost father ghost or something. It looked like they had been in a fire. That was my impression. And I was thinking, I actually had a thought, like I was trying to communicate with them, like, are you okay? And I felt like uh, they were coming ghosts from the Blackston ghost, thanking me for taking care of the gravesite out in the field. I used to fix the fence and trim the grass and say a little prayer for them. You know. mm-hmm. Good Irish Catholic kid would do. Sure. And then the, um, the strangest thing is uh, I... They, they, I reached over to touch the closest one to my head on its left shoulder in, in an empathetic way, asking if it was okay. Are you in pain? I said. And in my thought, I didn't come out and say it voice-wise, but my thought. They, that was my thought. I guess I could read my thoughts because it told me back again, and it came into me as a thought, don't touch him. <laughs> and that kind of startled me when it, when it did that. Just, it said, lay down, go back to sleep, everything's going to be okay. And so, being scared out of my mind, uh, I slowly lowered my body, my head back down on the pillow. I pulled the covers over top of my head and tucked them underneath the back of my head. I pulled the covers in the side, and I, I just shook in fear. And I, I thought, this can't be happening, you know. <laughs> this is just a bad nightmare. But I was very much awake, I can assure you that. It wasn't a dream, and I wasn't on psychotropic drugs, and I... Like I say, just ate normal food out of the garden on the farm, as if you would be in a third world country, how you grow your own food. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I remember that weird feeling of uh, floating, like a, like we call it when you become, um, I'm a pilot too, so I can tell you, it's, a, it's like being in an airplane and going into a dive. That's the feeling I had, and then I blacked out. And I thought, man, that was really bad. And then the next morning when I couldn't get up, my grandmother's yelling at me, and 
and I, I'm panicking. I'm, I got up. I was kind of a drowsy, doozy feel, like drowsy, you know what I mean? Like disoriented and tired. Mm. And, and and I had a lot of energy in me. I was a young, you know, kid full of energy, abundance of energy. Now I got downstairs. I met her halfway into the house to the, toward the kitchen. And she looked at me and was wanted to insist that I go to the doctors because she said the whole side of my lift, the side of my face was like red, really bad. And she does it hurt? And she's, you know, concerned. She's getting ready to take me to doctors. And I hate, I fear doctors. I don't know why. But I, I told her, no, I was fine. And um, then I asked her before we continued on to the kitchen. I says, I says, Bobshi, that's a Polish word for grandma. I said, Is, was there anything strange you heard or saw last night? And she just looked at me. She says, smiling. She says, no, why? And, and I thought to myself, this is crazy. Yeah. I never had anything like that ever happen before, and but these things are real. And oh, I can I can describe the middle one. It the, the little ones, the two little ones were identical. The one in the middle was taller, and it was uniquely different. Proportionally, the head wasn't as big, and it looked more human. If that helps you any, the body, of course, is like what you see—the skinny. They don't have the muscular body that they show in some of these pictures. The bodies are not muscular. They just look frail. And this is not a dream? No, this is not a dream. (laughs) Wish it were. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It'd be a lot easier to deal with. (laughs) And I put this in the back of my head for many years. And, um, but at my age now. That was the only time? No, there's other things that happen weird like that too. Not what they showed themselves. I think I had SP. I think it was like an extra century ability that I could what do you call it? precognition? I think where you mm-hmm. can predict things and see things in the future, or whatever. Or, or precognition, I think they call it. Okay. And, and I believe that's what it enabled me to get up. And I think I surprised them. I think I surprised them, where they kind of sneak around at night on people. Did you feel different after you returned? Other than. Other than that, I was really weary, tired, like worn out, and like I was, I was spent, you know. And normally, I was full of energy. I mean, mm-hmm. I was a. My grandfather used to say, "Slow down, Whitey." I had like white hair, you know, and he mm-hmm. said, "Slow down, you're, uh, you know, you move too fast. You're gonna." In fact, he told me, he says, "You see those jets up in the sky?" He says, "They, they go fast. They burn up. You need to slow down some." I just was full of energy, and I, and I guess that. Um, that, that morning when I got up, it was I was so worn out, like feeling, and that burn on the side of my face that my grandmother witnessed. Um, I never told anybody this until just recently. I kept this to myself. I never told my mother and my father, my grandmother, no one. I just don't, you know. What made you talk? Well, my daughter turned forty, and I want her to be aware, and I want the grandkids to be aware that there's, there are things out there that most people are not aware of, but they need to be aware of. I guess I want to share with... And since I took the time to write all this down, like, which I gave you, I thought, since I took the time to write it down, I'm going to share with others, too. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, you listened to my very first interview with uh, Milton Torres, who kept a secret for over 50 years. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I mean, first of all, who's going to believe you? Right. You know what I mean? Um, if if they don't believe you, why tell them? It, it just, it, you know what I'm saying? It, it's like I saw some strange things in my day, and 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 
and I, if you read what I wrote pretty well, you, you read that I did some strange things. And, and I had some kind of strange abilities of some kind, too. Let's, 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 let's continue in, in chronology. Okay. It's been a long life. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and I know that there's a lot of information. But for, for the listeners, I want to be able to go back in time to know exactly what happened year after year. So after this incident, what comes next? Okay, well, the other thing I remember that was strange was when we moved to the city, that was uh, 824 Monroe Street in Wilmington, Delaware, and my father bought a, a new Buick, a 55 or something. It was a two-tone green, I think dark in the bottom and lighter green in the middle, and four-door, and I sat behind his seat on the way to the farm, typically on Sundays, and on the way to the farm, it was about a 40-mile trip, something like that, from Wilmington. We go down Route 13 and a place called Blackbird, where it was like nothing there, no development, no houses hardly. But there was an abandoned gas station on the right. And as we're driving along, I'm looking out the window. My sister's sitting to the right of me in the back seat. And all of a sudden, I, I hear a voice. It's almost like a voice planted inside the back of your head, intelligible voice that said, lay down on the floor with your back to the front seat. And that's a thought that was put in my head, like a, almost like a voice. And, and I in, induced a thought saying, why would I want to do that? You know, <laughs> I'm comfortable. The seat's very comfortable. I'm looking around. And I'm like, it's almost like I'm arguing with myself. That's the kind of way they talk to you. I think that today, I think it's aliens. I don't know what else it could be. Angels, like you call it. You could, you could transpose angel and alien. And so then I, um, I, I refused three times. The third time after I refused, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm talking to myself. Remember, this is really a weird feeling. I had a severe pain hit me right in the stomach. Like someone just kicked me in the stomach. And I thought, my God, that hurts. You know, and so I bent over. And I said, I don't think I'll comply. So I laid down on the floor with my back to the front seat. Within a minute of after doing that, there was a car coming from the left, across from left to right, across the grass median strip, four-lane highway. And my father T-boned the car that was crossing uh, the intersection, right? No, it wasn't an intersection, so it was simply crossing the road. And all I, I don't know what would happen. Cause I, the car went flying all over, the, all over the place. It totaled both cars, and they took out two gas pumps at a gas station, which were turned, turned off, thank goodness. Mm. And well, the next thing I remember when I came to was the ambulance crew there to they, they, had, they already had everybody else hauled off to the hospital, and that, and that was on the floor. They figured I was dead, I guess. <laughs> but they, the ambulance people, tried to get me to get on the gurney and you know go to the to go to the hospital. I refused. I hate doctors. So finally, the state trooper came over, Delaware State Trooper, and he said, "Why won't you go? You might have a concussion." I says, no, I'm fine. He says, well, you don't understand. We found you on the floor. I says, well, I was laying on the floor when we had the accident. I did not tell that state trooper or the ambulance crew why I was laying on the floor. <laughs> Obvious reasons, because they were sworn I had a concussion by then. I mean, who would listen to your inner voice telling you to lay down on the floor right before an accident? So you didn't so, tell the story to the to the cops? No, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't yeah. tell anyone. I mean, who would believe it, or one? But So the, the state trooper says, oh, he told the ambulance crew, that's, that's why he wasn't injured. He's probably okay. He says, well, you know... You want to come to the hospital? 
I said, where were you headed? I said, down to my grandparents' farm. He says, oh, I know the farm. Like, hey, and he took me down here. That was nice for him. How about the rest? Uh, were they injured? Oh, yeah. They they spend a week in a hospital or more. Uh, Everybody? Both cars? Both both parties? Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the old guy in the other car got tore pretty bad, too. He got T-boned, and everybody in our car got hurt. Okay. Everybody, all I remember is people crying, you know? Mm. And that's all I saw. Because they had me off separate trying to get me to, you know, go on a gurney, you know? What year it, was this, and how old were you? It must have been um, in the mid-50s sometime. Okay. 55, 56, something like that. I'm okay. guessing. And this is after the, your, your alien encounter, of course. I don't recall. You know, chronologically, I don't remember. If that was the reason why I was down on a farm with my grandparents only, it might have been mm. that that uh, because I was there for a week without my my parents being there. Mm. So it might have been that right after that. So chronologically, it's backwards. Okay. Okay. So this happened before the, the so. encounter. And you were the only one who didn't suffer any injuries. Walked away from it, yeah. Walked away. Yeah, like the Bruce Willis story about, you know, uh, Unbreakable. Yeah. Makes you wonder, huh? So this happened, then the farm encounter happened then, afterwards. Yeah, I think so. Okay, and what happens next? Jeez, uh, let me think what happened after that. Can you prompt me with the... Uh, sure. I wrote down a bunch of things. Sure, I'm going to open it here so that I can start looking at it, but... Uh, uh, let's talk about the bullies in school. The what? The bullies in school. The bullies? Yes. Hmm. Didn't you have an incident where a kid wanted to fight you? Oh, I've had incidents where, because uh, I was like, what's the word I want to use? I shoot from the hip, so to speak. You know, I yep. say what I think. And right. it irritates mm -hmm. people. You know, I have a tendency to do that. I apologize to all the people listening that, that recognize who I am. But, uh, yeah, there's been uh, people that bullies. But there was an incident where a friend, Frank, said, uh, and this is in McCain High School, he wanted to um, me to fight a guy that was studying karate from Kim. Kim D. So ends with I-O-U-S. He was in a book of who's who, his second best in the world, 1966 book, book of who's who. Mm -hmm. And he wanted me to fight this guy because I was tall and, you know, he thought yeah, but this 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 came after this came out when you were a teenager. But I remember you had a story in school where a kid almost died after oh, he tried to fight. School. That was in the army. You, oh, okay, okay. You're jumping way ahead. Nineteen. Okay, sorry, sorry. Go back then. I can give. So I give his name. He might be still alive. Uh, Bill Chambers. He was. He he. I was like anti-army, anti-war, anti-fighting. And the uh, sergeant put this guy in charge of our squad named Bill Chambers. And he had every, the sergeant, the, the big boss said, everybody falls out except for Willis and Chambers. And Chambers says, I was put in charge because you're a troublemaker and people are listening to you. And he, and he showed me his card. It said professional heavyweight champion, North Carolina. And, you know, boxers have cards that say they're boxers, I guess. And he was trying to intimidate me to toe the line and, you know, stop talking anti-war. I was kind of a rebel, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I said, I don't know, but, you, you know, you're not really 
being very effective in trying to intimidate me because um, I was I studied under Bruce Lee's best buddy Kim and was able to beat Kim, which was uh, you know pretty good fighter in sparring and two of his best black belts at the same time. I said, so, you know, fighting boxing is not fighting, you know. And so I, he wanted to intimidate me. So I says, let me just show you something. I took my boots off, which took quite a long time, and my socks, and we got in the middle of the floor, and I says, okay, throw a punch at me. And so he did, and he didn't even see it coming. I mean, and I didn't hit him. I was trained to, to hit to full force, full focus, full power, full speed, and come within two to four inches, and that's considered a hit. That's why I was trained with no no protection, no um no gloves or anything. Mm-hmm. Just for, it was just amazing. We didn't get hurt each other, but we were really precise, you know. So he didn't see it. So the next day, we went out to the exercise field, huge area. You know, this is a whole North Carolina's Fort Bragg out there working out, you know, practicing. And they sat around the big circle, like a whole company or more. And they would say, everybody choose a partner. So he, he sat down next to me in this big circle with a um, big manuring grin on his face, thinking he's going to teach me a lesson. <laughs> Didn't turn out that way. Um, and so the sergeant set it up. Sergeant Critterton, his name was. This is what you were already? You were already enlisted in the Army? Yeah, I was in the boot camp. Okay, before, before this, were there any events in between the accident, the abduction, and oh, before yeah, you joined the army, let's yep, let's, let's go in steps there, and then we can jump to the future. Because I go, I like to go precisely in chronological order, if you don't mind. There's so many strange things. I guess you call them strange. Um, I'm not sure if I should talk about some of these things because people died. And I don't I only mm-hmm. talk about people dying. It, it's important if it's, it's part of the story and it's relevant, uh, Walt. You have to understand what you're saying is something totally out of the mainstream <laughs> to you <laughs> to me exactly to me and to to most people that's why i know it's important it is important uh, okay it really hurts though i gotta tell you i don't i don't know if i can talk about pe- people that died that gave me a hard time should i talk about that's, that yes that's exactly what I, when i said bullies that's more or less what i what is inferring you mean people that bully me and then wind up dead? Yes. Oh, God. You don't know how hard that hurts to see back in my memory about... Mm. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that it hurts, uh, Walt, but if we're going to put the story out there, I think it's important. And you didn't mean it, by the way. You know, I really risk my guts out, but I'll talk about it if it, means, if it benefits you know, okay. uh, the, the listeners. Uh, the first time I can remember of weird things that people would be mean to me, and I don't know why. I don't know who's protecting me. or if I, For a long time, I thought I was the Antichrist because people would give me a hard time and wind up dead. And I don't, That's what really troubles me. Uh, I can tell you this, though. Tell me the first time. The first time I can remember, and I never really thought about it other than coincidence the first time happened. But then it was more than a coincidence. It kept happening and happening. The first time was... Um, I w- there was a Joanne Ferrari that lived two houses down, and she was older than me, and we were good friends. I was about 10 years old or so, living in Delaware. And I went knocking on the door, and the father came to the door 
oh, he was angry as can be. He didn't want me to talk to her, his daughter, and this and that. And I'm thinking, what the heck is going on here? Then he gets a real fire in his eyes. He comes out the door and sits on his three-step stoop, and he's cussing me. Then he started to get up like he was going to hit me if I didn't go away. I kept, I was persistent. I'm a real annoying person sometimes, <laughs> and persistent, I guess. Um, and so then he starts to get up like he's going to hit me or chase me, and he just falls over and does a face plant on the concrete floor, on the concrete uh, sidewalk. I thought that was odd, you know. That was one strange thing that happened that, you know, why did that happen? And then... Did he die? Oh, he died, yeah. What was what was the cause of cause of death? I don't know. Huh. <laughs> I, don't, okay. I, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Then another time, which was really striking, was over in Germany when I was stationed over there. These two new guys came into the uh, battalion. So, hold on, from here... Nothing happened until you joined the military? Other things happened, too. I mean, people getting hurt that give me a hard time. Let's 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 discuss that. You really want to talk about that? I really don't. Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's relevant to the story. I mean, we, so that we know what happens next. But it's like I'm the Antichrist, you know what I mean? It's well, like, I don't think so. If 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 perhaps you have somebody helping you, there's a, a reason why you're telling all the story. And you know, I recently heard somebody talk about how supposedly we have a soul contract, and sometimes we see children dying at the age of three or four, and yeah. apparently that's that's what they signed up for. It's very hard for me to grasp that. Being a being a, a former Catholic, it's tough for me to grasp that. But yeah. at the same time. I've also heard from people saying that they have come very close to dying and, a, 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 and an invisible force has helped them. This has happened to me many times where I was really? supposed to die and I'm still alive. Really? And I wonder if what you went through on those people who wanted to harm you, if that was that force helping you survive. Well, yeah, for what purpose? I don't know. I really don't see what I've done or anything special on this earth. Um other than share what I know with you and others. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you had the same experience. It's kind of unnerving. Well, sometimes I, it's, it's difficult to express that. Yeah, you don't, you know where I'm coming from. Okay. Uh, geez. I just, I should go ahead and go from um, that and skip into, let's say, the thing on the driving down that, that voice. Yep. They can hurt you. They can actually double you up in pain to make you comply, which really surprised me. The pain was severe. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can hurt you or they could help you. <laughs> you know what I mean? The, whatever they are, angels. I mean, a lot of religious people will refer to them as angels. But angels sounds like voodoo, spiritual, make-believe, you know, fa- fairy tale. Well, everybody, everybody talks about their experiences based on the prism, on their perspective. If it's a religious person, they will tell you it was an angel. If yeah. it was an atheist, they may tell you it was a coincidence. Yeah, and that's, that's what's the scary part. And that's why it's hard to talk to some people that have never had an experience like that. And they never heard a voice, an inner voice, I guess you call it, telling them mm-hmm. to do something or not do something. Right. I should read that, what I wrote to you and see what the next chronological order of things were. Yeah, it's a, it's a long document, and uh, 
the next thing I see, Walt, is the my mother stood with the Air Force officer to my left, and the sergeant stood in front as another man entered the room. Oh, interesting story, Mel. Thank you for reminding me. I forgot okay. all about living at 806. We were living in, we had a house being built in Pinecrest, and that's in Delaware still, in the suburbs, and we were going to move out there. Well, we had a transition period of a year. I lived at 806 Brown Street in Wilmington with my grandparents. We rented the um, a garage to store a lot of our belongings in. And I used to go to Canby Park Pool in the summertime every day. I spent more time underwater than on top. I love the water. I don't know why. But I did one time I got out of the water and I was looking to the west, southwest, I think it was, or south, southwest, and I saw flying saucers. I mean, I didn't know what they were, flying saucers. I just knew they were round things flying around. And I described how they were flying uh, to a sergeant on the phone when I got home. I told my mother to call the sergeant at the police department. I thought it was important to tell him that there was some really strange aerial activity display south of the park. And believe it or not, the next day, I went around my around the corner of my friend's house. Um, and Can I use his name? I better not. He's still alive. You can just use the first name. John, okay. Uh, John's father answered the door. There was a row home next to a bakery, and I could tell you on Stroud Street. And the, I could hear someone talking to John's father, and they, he said, is so-and-so here, Walt Wells here, and can we maybe speak with him in private? And John's father said, sure. So he, he cleared the house out for us, you know, and he left us in the front room, and I stood facing toward the street in the other part of the room, the living room. Um, the officer came in with my mother, and they stood to my left. The sergeant came in and stood in front of the bay window in the front where the street was, facing me. And I started to tell the, the officer the story. And the officer said, well, you hold on a second. We have one more guy coming. The strangest dude walked in the door without any escort or anything. You ever see the men in black, no. how they look? This is what he looked like. He looked like an average person, um, Just and he wouldn't talk to me. I even got up in his face and had dark glasses. I couldn't even see his eyes. He had dark glasses on, had a weird hat, and he had a, a yellow steno-type pad, you know, like a small, like a sonographer's pad, with a uh, yellow and red lines in it. And I saw that, and he had a pen. He was like he was taking notes. And I said, are you with the FBI? Are you, you know? With the CIA, you know, I, was, I was asking him questions, and he just ignored me like I wasn't even there. So I, the officer said, well, let's just tell your story. So I went back into my position where I was sitting or standing, and I started telling the story of what I saw. And should I tell you what I saw? Please. Okay. The, the objects were mostly in formations of groups of three, mostly, not all the time. They flew around... In a, in a manner that was kind of jerky and unorthodox for air, aircraft to fly. And once in a while, another stray one would come in and out and fly around. And they did a lot of aerobatics that defy any kind of G-force ability for any kind of aircraft that I've done, ever, ever known. Like I say, I'm a pilot. I can only take mm -hmm. so many Gs. And then when they departed, they departed like on a 30-degree angle, uh, well, at first they went like almost straight up, and then they got up into high space, really high, all of a sudden, real fast. And when they took off, they went to the left, to the east, 
like southeast area. Mm-hmm. And they took off on about a 30-degree angle, and, and it took off so fast and accelerated so fast that it looked like they almost disappeared. Just gone into space. That shook me up. And I thought, the Air Force should be aware of this. And I, so that's why I called the sergeant, the sergeant that, that evening. And um, then the officer... So you, you were a 13-year-old kid, and you called the cops? Yeah. My mother let me call, talk to the uh, sergeant. Okay. After a lot of debate, we had a lot of... Because she was in the Air Force and says, there's no such thing that flies like that. You're just a 13-year-old stupid kid, you know, just go to sleep, you know. Sure. But I, I had to tell someone because it was an anomaly that I just couldn't fathom. So anyway, this, this lieutenant starts parroting back uh, things that it might have been, trying to, you know, plant a seed in my head saying it was something explainable. Mm-hmm. And then he went through his swamp gas and all his other lists of <laughs> this routine. So then I I got tired of him doing this. Even though this went on for quite a while, you know, trying to get me to say something different that I didn't see it or whatever. So I finally got tired and I parroted back one of his ideas. And then I could see it on the right side, on the corner of my eye, the guy in black shake his head left and right. And that told me that, no, this lieutenant or captain, whatever he was, was not the fellow in charge. It was the uh, the man in black. Mm-hmm. Made me suspicious. Uh, I'm getting tired, but that's repeating the same thing over and over again. And this guy's telling me I didn't see what I saw. So I decided, okay, I'll get rid of these guys. I'll come up with a better story, you know. So apparently picking one of his stories, parodying back, didn't work. So I'll come up with an original one. And uh, by the way, uh, in high school, I did test like top 10% on SATs and science. So I I was a pretty smart kid that way. And um, then I come up with a good enough story. I saw it's probably reflections and honest fairness. I'm I'm giving them all this stuff, right? And then uh, the guy in black folds his book and just walks out without saying a word. And then the uh, the officer walks out with my mother. He and the officer thanks me for my cooperation because the man in black finally was he bought the story. And then the uh, the sergeant was on his way out the door, and I caught him before he got into the hallway toward the door. And I grabbed him on his sleeve. And I said, "Sarge, I says, I says, look, got a minute?" He says, "Sure." He says, "I said I got a question for you." I says, "Tell me this. Tell me they're not Russian aircraft." you know, high-tech Russian aircraft, mm-hmm. and tell me the government is well aware of what it is and what's going on. And he just smiled at me. He said, you're a pretty smart kid, aren't you? <laughs> I tricked the man in black, you know. And um, so he said, listen, yeah, the government does know about it. And they actually, they're going to tell the American people soon. And just don't say anything, you know, just keep it to yourself. And no, they're not Russian. So then he, so I said, oh, thanks. Okay, at least I'm not crazy, you know. So he left. And that was in 1959, Mel. Don't you think I waited long enough, really? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, uh, I believe in national security, by the way. I, I, I think it's important to keep secret all these things. But not at the expense of what's going on right now. There, there's too many um, people coming out and saying, hey, we're running out of fuel, we don't, we don't have the energy, and we do have the power. And, and I'll get into that after, well, I'll tell you about high school, what a teacher told me. Mm-hmm. God, I hope he's not still with the living, because I'll, I don't want to get him in trouble. That's a whole other story, though. About Yeah, I remember, your, your, your teacher that started telling you info. Yeah, 
Yeah, okay. it, it was really funny because uh, I this this teacher I highly respected. I, I used to ride motorcycles with his with his son Jimmy, and I thought, you know, he he told me something that didn't make any sense, and this guy was a no nonsense type guy. He, he was totally into science and really knew his stuff. Great teacher. Anyway, that that's the story of the um, the man in black, which really freaked me out, and the officers and the sergeant, and what I saw at Canby Park. You never saw them again. You never saw that man in black again. No, no, he's a strange, dude. I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners have ever seen a man in black, uh, but they are really odd. Well, we discuss the topic all the time, and the description that you you mention is exactly as. Uh, you know, people like Nick Redfern and, and some of the researchers discuss this topic, and they are dressed just like you're telling us. I mean, even, even today, there was a video out there that uh, I believe it was Coast to Coast AM that presented it from somebody who works at a hotel, and they took the surveillance video of two alleged men in black coming in, and they are dressed exactly as you're telling pale, you know, with the glasses and the, the fedora hat, dressed in black, and usually they drive a 1940s or 50s car. You know, very similar. I didn't see the car. It's kind of weird. I mean, it's just so strange, you know, mm -hmm. to see something like that. So it was interesting that you sensed that he was the one in charge when he was nodding his head left and right, almost oh, yeah, as if, if the sergeant was following orders. Well, the, the lieutenant or the captain, whatever he was, you know, oh, definitely okay. he was in charge because, um, and he was able to probably read my mind because, I mean, the lieutenant or the captain, whatever he was, the officer, he, he didn't, he was, he would have bought it, you know, my, my story parodying back to him because, you know, but the guy in black shook his head like he, he knew I was lying. <laughs> Who do you think the man in black was? You think he's from this quote unquote neighborhood? I don't know. I mean, you heard stories from other people. Uh, they don't seem normal. <laughs> I can tell you that for sure. Mm -hmm. They weren't normal. I, I wish that I could find out what's going on. This is why I'm telling this story, too, partly. I want to know more. I want to know what happened to me, what's going on in this country, and why are these, why are people still not being told the truth? It's been 1959, they the sergeant said that they were going to soon tell the American people what's going on. And that's why I'm glad you're, you're coming out, Walt, because with people like you coming out, it opens one door. And when that one door opens, 10 doors more open, the multiplying effect, and people will start coming to me and to other people out there, and they'll feel more comfortable talking. I hope so, Mel. I hope we can, get, I hope we can stop the, the killing of innocent people to keep them quiet, too. Mm -hmm. This is what bothers me the most. So what happens next? Well, the next thing, I'm trying to think what else was weird in my life. Well, the teacher. The teacher part interests me because you mentioned it a lot. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me of the teacher. In high school, sure. I was taking science class and I was, can I tell the teacher's name? I guess so. Sure. Mr. Cole. Okay. Mr. Cole was really cool. This guy was a really nice guy. And... um and I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but I hope they're all passed away by now. I'm 65, so I think they're probably gone, I hope. <laughs> anyway, uh, Mr. Cole uh, liked me because I scored in the top 10% nationwide SATs in science, and I picked his brain during class. After class, I would help clean up just to pick his brain more. And he was tasked with 
going to build a new science lab, the one that I was work, then working in at the McCain High School. It was a split off from John Dickinson High School. And it was funny because he said that while I was cleaning up after after class, or we were cleaning up bottles and stuff and washing, I was in one sink and he was to my right cleaning other bottles and other sink. And all, out of the blue, he just said, Walt, have you ever given any thought to what the most powerful force in the universe was? And I was washing bottles away. I says, well, fission, uh, no fusion, like that, I said. And I waited a few seconds. He said, no, care to guess again? And I thought, who's he kidding? Fusion is the most powerful force in the universe. Or so I thought. And I said, that's what I said to him. And he said, no, try again. And I said, I turned the water off. I said, look. You're telling me there's something more powerful than fusion. I want to know what you think it is. Not that I believe you, but, you know, you can tell me. And he said, well, okay, it's electromagnetism. Now, get this, Mel. Electromagnetism. And I said, magnets? Like that, incredulous, as it sounded, magnets. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he looks at me and says, well, not exactly. He says, electromagnetism is a little bit different than just magnets. I says, then why are we burning things to propel things and make things move when we can use magnets and not pollute the earth? And and, and you're saying it's more efficient. We should work on magnets. He says, well, it's not exactly how it works. I says, well, we really need to clean up this mess we're making with this burning things and, you know, transition. He says, well, listen, he says, well, he says, do you have any idea? how much more powerful it was than uh, fusion. I says, first you have to convince me it's more powerful. Like that, I told him. And then he, and he said, uh, well, it is. He says, any, any guess on how much more powerful? I said, I don't believe it's more powerful. I says, you know, you're telling me this stuff, but I says, okay, I turned the word off again. I said, look, if you're, if you're going to make up these fictitious things, tell me what you think is how much more powerful it is. I'd like to hear what your theory is on this. And he said, well, it's 10 to the 34th power over um, fusion. And I looked, just looked at him, and he had, his, he had this manurian grin on his face like a Cheshire cat. And I, and I thought, he's just pulling my leg, right? He says, I said, are you serious? He says, very serious. I said, well, what makes you think so? That it's, and how can you prove this to me? I was a skeptic. And he says, well, he says, I can't really tell you why or how. And he went on that for a while. So I went back to Washington. And he says, look, he says, if I tell you, he says, you have to promise never, ever to repeat this. And here I am on the darn radio telling everybody in the world. <laughs> and and I, I, I promised several times, and he made me go over and over again, promise and promise. So I finally got you know to the point where he says, okay, I'll tell you, but you must keep this to yourself. He said he was tasked with doing the design of a new science lab. So he went to his cousins or relatives or friends or somebody. You, you mean a top secret project at Los Alamos? Yes, a top secret project, Los Alamos, correct. Okay. And that's what he went to work uh, with them and live with them and, you know, pick their brain for good science design, you know, science lab. What he said was, he said, and he made me promise again to keep the secret. He said, what they're working on is a project that can produce all this enormous amounts of energy. And his eyes got real big and it rolled back in his head. He said, enormous amounts of electrical energy. And he, he, was, he was like, really, he went bizarre on me for a minute there. To overemphasize, I guess, the fact that it was 
tremendous amounts of energy, 10 to the 34th power of a fusion energy. He said, um, and it's just amazing. He says, I said, well, how does it work? Then he, he said, you've got to promise never to say this. And I, I thought, okay, I, I already promised you. And here I am talking. I'm sorry, I'm sorry Mr. Cole. <laughs> but here's how it works, he said. It's, it's a, what it is, it's mercury that spins at fifty to 60,000 RPMs within a superconductor magnetic field, um, you know, to keep it from flying apart. And it has the capability of reducing the gravitational pull of the Earth by 89%. It reduces time and inertia by the same degree. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I don't get it. How could it possibly, how can you spin? I said, how can you possibly get mercury to spin through a magnetic induction? And he says, he didn't know, but it wasn't normal. He didn't understand that either. And I don't understand it, but I said, it has to be laced with something, you know, ferrous, which means, you know, iron. That's the only thing I could think of, but who knows? I'm not sure how it works, but he explained it the best he could from what he was he understood, and that it came from reverse technology engineering from a, a down spacecraft, you know, a alien craft. He, he, he actually said that. Yeah, he actually said that, and that's where I started to think, okay, <laughs> where's the candid camera, you know? <laughs> right, right. And if he's saying that this could reduce time an inertia. inertia. In other words, and, yeah, yeah. are you saying that by reducing the gravitational force or gravity on Earth, mm -hmm. this would actually increase the lifespan of people by reducing I, I time? I imagine if you had one in your home, it would do the same as make you a thousand years old instead of a hundred, I guess. I'm assuming. I don't know how. This is back in the mid-60s, Mel. This is back in the mid-60s. Now, you've got to remember, back in the mid-60s, the American people were fat, dumb, and happy, and they didn't have a clue that there were aliens visiting Earth. Mm -hmm. and, and if I hadn't seen what I seen, I would never have believed it or bought into that story. And, and yes, we have the internet today, but I would say that most people, well, at least fifty percent, say they believe in extraterrestrial life. But really? if when you ask them, when you ask them today, mm -hmm. they will tell you mm, there's no proof. But then you have Mr. Cole. Telling you that he was working in a top secret project at Los Alamos, and he was building a new science lab for the new McCain uh, High School, telling you that we recovered this technology from downed extraterrestrial aircraft. He confirmed that to you. It was his relatives working there. Two or three of his relatives worked there. Okay. He was staying with them, picking their brain for a new science lab design. Okay. And and I thought, my God, this is this. It was hard for me to believe, even after I seen what I thought were ghosts, not aliens. At this point, I just still didn't know what they were. I didn't, I thought they were ghosts. Did you tell Mr. Cole your story of no. the uh, possible abduction? <laughs> you, you know, it's kind of funny. Here I am talking about it now. Uh, how many years later? God, 1955 or six, whatever it was. That's a long time ago. It's a long time. A any other recollection from uh, conversations with Mr. Cole? No, that was about the stunning thing I ever got from him, and and that was that was bizarre. Okay, and this is in high school. What happens next? Oh, uh, I'm trying to think. Can you jog my memory? I don't have that paper in front of me. I gave you. Sure. I'm uh, this, this part. You uh, kind of put it in the middle. 
But uh, let me just go forward a little bit here, because it's a, it's a long document, and I guess you were pouring your heart out when you wrote this. It, it was uh, for my daughter. It wasn't for consumption for the world. That's right. That's right. That's right. And my grandkids. You move uh, in 1960, you move to the suburbs, and that's when uh, the Man in Black story happened, I believe. No, here, here it is. Uh, and you took karate from Kim in Newark. Yeah. Well, well, in high, high school. school. Yep, in high yes. school. Yes. Okay. I took karate from Kim, and I didn't know who Kim was. All, all I know is he was uh, teaching high school in a church, an abandoned church in, down in the basement, and in the second floor. And um, it was it was interesting, because he didn't speak English very well. And so I, um, I wound up taking an hour and a half class, and then during the, another half-hour break, when people were transitioning, some were leaving and some were coming in. I thought it was all one class. So I'd go like, you know, three nights a week. I'd, and I'd be practicing in between. So I got pretty good. I, 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 uh, I do things to obsession, I guess you call it. Um, I become obsessed with something. And about this Kim D. I, yeah. I presume, was he Asian? I don't know. He looked like he was Greek, but uh, he looked like Asian Greek or something. I couldn't tell. Okay, well, because he say, uh, he, I have here you said that he said he was in the book of Who's Who as yep. second best in the world yep. and was more famous than Bruce Lee. How so? That's what he told me, yeah. And then he, I didn't believe him, so the next day or next week or so, he brought in the book of Who's Who, and sure enough, there is his name. And then um, I got to be really good at, at karate, but I never tested for any belts. I refused to test for belts. And my mother but you were teaching... You were teaching black belt class after being there for one year? About a year and a half, year or something like that. And I was invited to go to the black belt night, which was held on Monday nights. And a lot of people that, uh, and there's a lot of, he was famous too. I guess later on he became very famous. But what really struck me was he said that he wanted me to represent the school at the World Open Martial Arts Tournament, which is held in a major city in different countries every year. And it was held in D.C. that year. This was in 66, I believe. And you were 140 pounds and six foot three. 148 pound rag arm. Yeah, I was skinny. I have photographs, so it's unbelievable. And you were 6'3". Yeah, 6'3". I, I, I had friends that used to make fun of me and say, hey, it's kind of windy today for you to be out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or how about this one? Uh, the friend's mother said, hey, Willis, you're... Uh, you're out in a windy day. I says, I didn't recognize you behind that telephone pole. <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of cracks about me being so skinny. It was, like, I was really thought, now I don't not skinny anymore, but it was really embarrassing. It was so embarrassing that when I went into the military, after I, they saw that I could fight real good, the sergeant was ordered to go through the chow line with me and and tell the cooks, to issue double portions to me. And he sat down across from the table and, and made me eat everything. I was that skinny. Mm. That's pretty embarrassing. So what happened in 1966 when uh, you were invited to go with them to the World Open in Washington, D.C.? Yeah, he wanted me to go. And, and he said he he said he was uh, more famous than Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee was a friend of his. But I didn't believe a word of it. He said he was going to get one of Elvis's pink Cadillacs borrowed from a, another friend of his. I don't know how I knew all these people, but we wound up going in one of Elvis's pink Cadillacs, and I was driving in the back seat. I'll try to drive. He wouldn't let me drive it. Um, we got there, and we get into this great big, huge 
how many called those convention centers? Mm-hmm. It was huge. I mean, the place was crowded. It was like the whole world showed up there from karate. And we walk in, and you know, we like four of us, you know, four of us people. And uh, we got into about a quarter of the way in, and we could see in the middle of the great big convention center there was Bruce Lee, and um, and, a, and a bodyguard apparently. Remember the movie Goldfinger with Oddjob? Goldfinger, yeah. Okay, the the the. the guy oh, had, Goldfinger! You mean the James Bond movie? James Bond. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was like he threw the hat and it cut off the statue's head. That yeah. guy, Oddjob. Mm-hmm. The heavy set sumo wrestler looking guy. Well that's right. his body that was his bodyguard. And so I saw Bruce Lee and his bodyguard and talking to someone else and I saw um my teacher he spotted my teacher, looked at us, and he came running over, smiling and gave and my teacher went walking over to him and gave each other a big hug like they were old friends, you know. And I thought, Darn, he was telling me the truth. He really was good friends with Bruce Lee. And and I used to like to watch the movie um, on TV called Green Hornet, and yep. I thought it was really cool. Anyway, I was wearing uh, these Cuban heel patent leather shoes with points on them and a green jacket, a pea green jacket with two dragons on the top. You can see me. If you ever see when Chuck Norris gets his triple crown win, you can spot me. I'm this tall, skinny thing. And, and um, Is was, there a video out there of that event? There is. I saw it. I saw myself on TV. I couldn't believe it. And I thought to myself, darn, they took pictures. There's movies of that. When Chuck this Norris... Is Chuck, this is Chuck Norris, uh, 1966 or 67, in Washington. Yeah, and it was, if you can get a hold of it, I'd get a copy for my kids, grandkids. Uh, okay. It would be really fun to have, see them, you know, see what, let them see what their grandfather looked like, you know. But, okay. But I, I, got, I, was, I got invited to stand ringside with Oddjob and... Um, Bruce Lee and my teacher, when Chuck Norris fought, fought Lewis. I could tell you in detail what it was like. It was, it was really a cool thing to be there at that time. And I was the one shaking uh, Chuck Norris's hand after his victory, his triple crown. You can see, that's how you tell, that's how you tell who I was there. And then, um, but it was really weird because my teacher must have told him about how I was able to beat him and two of his best black belts simultaneously at the same time. Every Hold time. on. Your teacher told Bruce Lee that you beat him? Yeah, no, I, I beat my teacher and two of his best black belts. And I was teaching his class for like six months before I went into the Army. Wow, so you beat your teacher? Oh, yeah, I beat him easily. Who was one of the, who's one of the best in the world? Yes, that's right. <laughs> okay. That's why he wanted me to go to D.C. and fight there. And I was okay. a white And Mel, I was a white belt. I'm, I was technically not a white belt. In fact, he told the, cl- the black belt class where they, when I was teaching the black belts, he says, don't treat this guy like a white belt. He's no white belt. He could beat me. And, mm. and sure enough, I was doing it. And I didn't understand how I had that ability. Cause I, but I did work out. I mean, when I got home, and I, was, I, I absorbed things like uh, obsession. And that's what I did. I was obsessed with it. So anyway, the, the, the fact is that I got to stay in ringside when... Chuck Norris won his triple crown. That was really cool with Bruce Lee, my hero. Oh, odd job. When we first was when when I was invited to finally get over there and talk to Bruce Lee, I ran over to Bruce Lee a little too fast, I guess. Then and he already must have told him about what a you know karate killer I was because odd job jumped out in front of between us 
and he was he got into his stance ready to defend Bruce Lee. And so I went into a stance ready to take out Objob. <laughs> and you could hear Bruce Lee and my teacher scream like little girls, no, no. And I thought that was kind of humorous because I wasn't going to attack until he attacked me. Mm-hmm. But he, but apparently Bruce Lee couldn't talk English very well, but he could. He didn't like to, and he, he could understand English pretty well. And now I'm sorry about the comments I made because I thought he couldn't understand English. His face was... Um, you ever see somebody that had acne real bad? Yep. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I thought, man, his face, I talked to my teacher, I said, his face is all, you know, cracked looking and acne, you know. And I think Bruce Lee heard that and understood it. <laughs> mm. Like he looked older in person than he did on TV. And at the time, he was in his 20s. Well, was he? Wow. Yeah, when did he die? Uh, 19, early 70s, I believe. Wow, I didn't know he was that, that young. Yeah. Yeah, I was like 18, I think. So what happened next? Because your teacher actually told Bruce Lee that you were so good, and I believe Bruce Lee wanted to see a sparring match between you and Chuck Norris. Chuck, is that what happened? Yeah, he called me over later to, to speak with him, and he started talking to me. And he actually tried to convince me to fight Chuck Norris in a private match. This, by the way, he was 26 in 1966. You're kidding no, he would. He was born in 1940 and died at the age of 33, 1973. Oh, I felt so bad when he passed away. Yeah, and, uh, and his son, too. Yeah, and his son. Mm-hmm. It's a shame. And Kim died, I heard, overseas, when he was overseas. All these people are passing away, Mel, and uh, it's like I'm all alone here. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone anymore. And, and, and let me ask you, your teacher must have told Bruce about how good you were. Yep. Because Bruce asked you to do the private sparring match with Chuck. Did that happen? And I didn't do it because I was, I said, oh, oh, I told him, I said, I'm a white belt. You know, I don't have, I don't have any uniform. My gi's not here, you know, and, it's, and he's telling me, I'll get you a gi. I said, well, I'm, I'm a white belt. He says, he says, I'll give you my black belt. And I thought, a gi is a, a black belt? His black belt, yeah. And I thought that was really be an honor. You know what I mean? to get Bruce Lee's black belt just to do a sparring match with. I came close to saying yes. Why did you say no? I just declined, you know. I declined a lot of things in my life. I, de- I declined. You thought you were going to kill him? No, I wasn't worried about killing him. I just didn't think I was that good. I didn't I didn't have the ego that people think I had. Mm. I just didn't have confidence. Like my father always beat on me pretty much about I was worthless, and I just thought I was, you know. You know how your mm. parents have an influence on your feelings. Yeah, and that's that so. Was, after this, after this, did you ever have any more encounters with uh, karate? Uh, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, I did. In fact, in the army, I had to fight with those sticks. I and I had to fight Bill Chambers, and and I Bill Chambers was much bigger and stronger than me, professional heavyweight champion, Carolina. And I was. Well, hold on. After this incident, this is 1966. In 1967, mm-hmm. is when you were drafted into yes. the army and sent to Fort Bragg. Yeah, I, I dropped out of karate and went into the army. Okay, uh, I did some remarkable things there. With naturally, I was a good fighter. Apparently, I was a good fighter because I never really liked to fight, and I didn't think my teacher was that great, or these other black belts were not not that great. Mm-hmm. They were pretty easy to beat. But then when I was drafted, I had to fight this boxer, and I thought, Oh God, here we go. I I just can't get out of fighting, can I? And every time you win a fight, you have to continue on to keep fighting. The losers get to sit back and watch the fights from then on. I was getting tired of that after a while. 
But first, first you were using padded sticks, correct? Yeah, the padded. Do you ever see those padded sticks they use in the military to fight with? They give you gloves that look like hockey gloves, and you have to wear a helmet, like a football helmet with a chin protector, yep. face protector, and they give you a mouthpiece to wear, and a cup, a plastic cup to protect your, you know, family. <laughs> and then they, <laughs> they expect you to go to it, you know, and, and and beat the snot out of each other. And you won every fight with knockouts. Oh yeah, I beat everybody. Some I tried to, con- I convinced that I said, listen, no one has to get it. The first fight I had, I actually stopped Bill Chambers' heart from beating and breathing. That's the first fight. So after that, I was real cautious about you know, warning people, you know, not to, um, to put on a good show like you would a, 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 text, a Western show where they, the TV, they, you can fake the punches and pull the punches. I was really good, precise about pulling punches to make it look like they were actually making contact. Did Bill Chambers die? He did. Uh, he did stop his heart from beating and breathing. I thought he was dead for sure because when I hit him the third time, well, in the, in round three, after the first round, I hit him, knocked him down, and he was quivering on the ground. The second time, the second round, he came up with a vengeance because he felt embarrassed because the sergeant set this up so to put me in place. And I hit him even harder, thinking that would stop the fight and he wouldn't fight anymore. And and he wouldn't move him, and he gave him smelling sauce and brought him back. But the third round, you think the guy would figure this out, you know, by the third round. But he didn't. He came out me even harder. So I thought, well, i got to give him everything I got. So I used a combination uppercut left to put his lights out permanently. And it, what I did was, I didn't realize at the time, Taekwondo teaches a drop punch, which means your body drops, to build a fulcrum and a focus point, you know, to condense the, like a, Centrifugal force, not centrifugal, a, a a diminishing circle. You know what I mean? Going from dropping your body down and pushing up, and in hard the Japanese karate, it requires a a, a sweeping motion, like an inward cut, like a how to explain. You when you when you step and you punch, you twist your body a certain way, and you get more focus on your punch when you focus more energy and more energy focused into a smaller uh, distance. You know, you focus like sharper, quicker, hard speed. Velocity is really where it's at, and focus. You know, you got to focus your punch. Anyway, I hit him with everything I had, Mel. I gave him a hundred percent, and I used two techniques from Korean and you know to Japanese, and it really knocked him through the air. He would have cleared a Volkswagen. That's how far up hmm. in the air he went. He would have cleared a Volkswagen, and when he went flying through the air. I could see his head bob three times as it was going. Everything looked slow motion to me at that time. I could actually catch arrows in flight. That's another story, though. Um, he, he could see it in slow motion, his head going back three times. The first time it went back, the helmet came partly off, and the mouthpiece went flying out and slobbered and everything. The, the second time, the helmet went off all the way, fell off. And when he hit the ground, he hit the ground flat on the back like, he, like it was a, a dish rag, just, you know, bleh. And bounced. And this is this is the North Carolina pro heavyweight champion. Yeah, Bill Chambers. I hope he's still alive. Were you still 140 pounds? 148 pound rag arm. Yeah, really sad. So he hits the ground, and my job, I was taught in school that you had it's called a two second roll. So I flew through the air after him, like some kind of crazy ninja TV commercial. You see where these karate people fly through the air. And I'm mm-hmm. flying through the air with the, the the last punch, you know, the last drive into the earth, because you had a two-second rule. From when they hit the ground, you're allowed to hit them within two seconds, but not after that. 
And but but I wasn't going to hit him. I was just flying through the air, and I was going to come down within two to four inches with full power, full focus. The little sergeant, drill sergeant, screamed like a little girl, no, Willis, don't do it. <laughs> and I thought, I wasn't going to hit him again. He's already down, you know. I was just, you know, doing what I was taught to do. So then the, um, the then I had to walk. I was really angry because I, I knew he was really hurt. I started walking away with the darn stick in my hand. I tore the helmet off my head, threw it down, and then I was walking back to the barracks because I was really angry that the sergeant set this fight up to teach me a lesson. And here I had to hit this guy so hard, I think I killed him. I hit him that hard. Uh, and when I, when I was walking away, I tried to break the, the stick over my knee. It didn't break. It hurt my knee instead. And the sergeants, and I told the sergeant, I says, listen, if this is a court-martial for murder, I says, I'm telling him this is your deal. You set this up. You're the one responsible for his death, not me like that. And, um, God, I, I was so angry that he set this up. You know, because I had to hit this guy this hard, and so that he, he convinced me to come back. He he picked up the stick and says, "Listen, relax. You're not going to get court martialed like that." So we went back over, and I went over to see him, and and they were still pumping on him and on his chest and everything. I thought, God, I was really upset. It really made me angry that he set this up. So anyway, I went over to look at his helmet. They picked the helmet up. It had a big split right down the middle. The mouthpiece was the. The, the chin guard was broke on one side off. I really hit him hard. And I thought that was just totally uncalled for to set that fight up, just to teach me a lesson so I wouldn't influence the body politic of the rest of the troops. So anyway, that was that fight. Uh, and I went on to fight a bunch of other people, including the guy that was... I mean, what was the, what was the reason they put you there to fight this guy? They oh, wanted to... Sh what, what were we trying to do? Because I was anti-Vietnam War. I was mm. in. Actually, I was drafted. I, they took me kicking and screaming. I didn't want. I didn't like to fight. I see. I, I, I'm. I'm what you call a pacifist, an introvert pacifist. And for an introvert pacifist to be drafted into the military to kill people was not a good place to be. I see. So you actually were. Were of course. This was against your will. Oh, against my whole belief. Yeah. And you were just showing them. Oh yeah, definitely. I was against fighting, other than to protect myself. And the last guy you had to fight was the D.C. area kickboxing champ for two years running. Two-year consecutive boxing. He said he was two. His friend said he was a two-year consecutive kickboxing champion from D.C. area. Third-degree black belt. Yeah, that's what he said. And and um, he bowed out in the third round. I was I was measured about how hard I hit him. And that was a good fight. This guy was a good fighter. I mean, it, it was a... I wish that was on video. <laughs> That was a good fight. I really appreciate that fight. This guy knew what I knew. This guy, you know, he was he was smart enough to kneel down and and bow out. Mm. He when you then he told me so in his school they teach him to kneel down when they quit, put their knee on the ground and tap the other guy on the leg, saying I had enough. And and I was but that time after fighting him for so hard, I wanted to take his head off because he really he threw some nasty stuff at me and you know he sent me back one time with one of his spinning back kicks, and I, I got it caught right in my solar plex, but I had my stick in front of my body. And I went flying through the air and did a flip. And then he come after me the same way I would do, but I bounced right back up on my feet again. Yeah, I, I did some incredible things. I think it, it was amazing. Because of all that you know, ability to fight, the sergeants thought I was great. And on Sunday, they were driving around looking for me with a whole bunch of drunken sergeants in a convertible, 
telling me, come here, Willis, you know, we want you to go drinking with us. And I told myself, this is Sunday, day of rest, this is my Lord's Day, I'm going to be, you only got me for two years, you know, and I'm out of here. I says, I am not interested in going drinking with a bunch of sergeants in boot camp. And they got really angry and sped off. And then it was about a week later, uh, we were going out to the exercise field, and on the way out, the whole, you marched like four abreast, you know, going out there. The sergeant called me out of line. He says, Will, step out of line. He says, I want you to go over here in the weeds, next to the weeds there, and wait. And I thought, what am I being punished for? He says, just do what you're told, I get. So I went over, and within, I'd say, five minutes of just standing around, here comes a UE helicopter with its side door open on the left, and a, um, I could see Bill Chambers in the helicopter, and I could see a, a guy dressed in, a Hulk, an officer dressed in, uh, Class A's with the green beret and you know jump boots, they land. And when Bill Chambers pointed to me, you know on the ground, they landed about maybe two hundred feet away. He pointed at Drew. That's the guy that kicked my butt. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he probably was saying. That's the guy that beat me. But the, mm-hmm. this officer just introduced himself as the commandant of the uh, Army Ranger School, and he said. He, at first, the thing he said when he saw me, when he walked up and I saluted him, he said, you? Like, almost incredulous, like, this can't be real. You know, this skinny, rag-armed kid. <laughs> he says, you? I says, sir? He said, you? You're the one that beat the Army boxing coach? I says, no, sir. It was that man pointing, you know, from the helicopter, the little chamber. I says, um, I, I beat him. He, built, he beat the Army boxing coach in an exhibition match. <laughs> and he did. You know? yeah. <laughs> he beat him, and you beat this one, too. I beat him, wow. yeah. And then he wow. looked at me and says, I can't believe it. He says, you think you can beat me? <laughs> and I and I gave him a CAT scan look, like, you know, from head to toe. And mm-hmm. I did it real slow. I says, yes, sir, but it won't be pretty. <laughs> mm. I don't know if he's still alive. <laughs> so what do you think happened there? Chambers probably said, they said, hey, I know this guy who can. I think it was the officer, the commanding officer of the company. Must have mm-hmm. called up his buddy down here at the uh, Ranger School in Fort Benning. I think that's what happened. I did mm-hmm. some weird things. I jumped off a 34-foot tower they used to have for confidence course for parachuters, tri- you know, paratroopers. Mm-hmm. I jumped off the darn thing. I was the first one off. I ticked off a sergeant because I was making fun of the first jump 11 feet up. It, it's, a three, it's a three-tier thing. I jumped off into a sandbox, and I thought, this is a joke. I want you to roll you know, jump with your rifle in your hand and stuff. I thought it was a joke. With an M14 I, rifle. M14 rifle. Yeah. We had to hold it out in front of us. He didn't, you know, stick you in a chin or something. So, right. So I, I ticked him off, apparently, and I was making fun of the, you know, going to the second level, are we? Oh, boy. I says, you know, <laughs> it was too easy for me. I was, like, real lightweight and real strong and wiry, like a spring. Mm-hmm. So he made, he's a, you're a smart guy, you know, so I'm going to make you climbed to the top. I had to climb to the top. I found out later it was from two different sources. I found out it was 34 foot high. <laughs> and I'll tell you something, Mel, if you get to a 34 foot high tower and you're looking down into a little, uh, sandbox area, mm. it looks like you're looking at the earth from the moon. <laughs> All right. It gives you the feeling like you're not going to be able to do this. And I said, mm. are you sure you want me to do this? Like, <laughs> and I, so what I do, I got down real, I stooped down real low and, and kicked my feet out. And jumped. I did the jump, and it went down. And I did a complete flip. I could hear every vertebrae, like you crack your knuckles, in my back mm-hmm. snap, like like a zip. And I did a complete flip. And I actually bounced up in the air. My feet were 
my body, whole body is bounced from a roll, and I came back and I landed on my feet. The only thing wrong was my helmet was a little crooked when my chimp strap was too loose, and I, and I was kind of wobbly, you know. And the sergeant's yelling at me, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" And I'm going, "Yeah, I'm okay." I thought to myself, "You know, just son of a gun." And then um, then I yelled back, "This no, I'm not okay. That hurt like that." And then then he made like four or five other guys jump. After I told them, don't do it, they still jumped, and they carried them off on stretchers. Oh, man, I was angry. And, and then I was going to say, that, that that seemed like an impossible jump. Oh, it's an impossible jump. I would never, ever let anybody do something like that. I don't care how fit they are. I don't know what – you want to know a guardian angel protected me? I don't know. But it, it was kind of weird, uncanny, that I landed on my feet if I did a complete flip and bounced off the ground. And it was a weird – it was a dumb thing to do. I should have never done it. But the other guys, definitely. And then, lo and behold, here comes the captain and the lieutenants and everybody's And they're, they called a halt to the jump after, like, a fifth guy gets hurt. Mm-hmm. And they marched us all back. And on the way back, we went past the sergeant. It looked like they were chewing on corn, the, the lieutenants and the captain, chewing up and down on the side of this guy's head, just cussing at him, you know. The sergeant was really deep due to it end. Because of what he did. No, oh, yeah, he was a... It was my fault for being a smartass, I guess, because I goaded him into, you know, making fun of the jump. You know, I shouldn't have done that. But anyway, that's, what happens next? Then is it uh, Fort Ord? I turned down the I turned down the offer. Oh, the guy wanted me to, you know, this uh, commandant or the Marine of the uh, Marine Corps of the uh, Ranger School. He, mm-hmm. he wanted to. He really, truly asked me. He wanted to test me out and fight me. And and I told him, I said, I can't do it. I have a problem with hitting an officer, number one. I also mm-hmm. have a problem with um, you going back to train our top soldiers and have to look at yourself in a mirror every day while you shave, realizing that you had your butt kicked by a a, a <laughs> 19-year-old rag arm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that something you, you kept to yourself? I told him that. You told him that. What did he say? And he just looked at me kind of strange. His eyes got, he kind of put his head back a little bit. His eyes looked at me bigger. I says, but he insisted. He wanted to see if I, what I was made of, I guess. I says, okay, I'll, I'll do it. But here's the problem. He says, you may, I said, you may not live through this because I'm going to have to hurt you right up front. I'm going to tell you, if you live, you'll be looking at the hospital ceiling for a long time, sucking your meals to a straw if you're lucky. <laughs> I says, you understand that, you know? He says, I understand that. I said, I can take this uniform off. We can have at it. I said, okay, I want two medics standing by with an ambulance in a far corner of this exercise field. I want them to face away and not watch what I'm going to do to you because it ain't going to be nice. Wow. <laughs> I told him wow. that. And I said, I will do that. And then he, he thought about it for a while. I said, but you got to remember, I have nothing to lose everything to win, you have everything to lose and nothing to win, and you have to go back and face the mirror every day the rest of your life knowing that a rag arm beat you. Mm. you know, and he thought about it. Then he stopped, he paused, he says, you're sure I can't talk you into coming back with me to the ranger school? We can take up, you can start right, we're, we're midway, but you can graduate. And because I was like midway through the boot camp thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I said, listen, that's the only thing you do for me is give me a discharge, honorable or dishonorable. I just don't want to be here. You know? And he, he says, okay. He saluted me, and I, I saluted him, and he went on his helicopter. And, oh, oh by the way, when he was walking back, Bill Chambers was met him halfway. He says, take me, take me. He's begging to go to a ranger school. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I thought, man, what a dummy. <laughs> uh-huh. So you actually made sense to him, and, and he didn't choose to fight you. Well, yeah, and I would have fought him, but it wouldn't have been fun. I mean, uh, he was built like, you ever see Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? This guy was built like him. He was strong. Really? He was a pretty tough dude. And Chambers was real tough, you know, 185-pound professional boxer. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you, you're 148 pounds, 6'3", yep. you're built like a pencil. pencil. No offense back then, right? Yeah. And these people look at you, and there's no way you can fight them. <laughs> I know. And the, the sad part is, uh, it's like Gomer Pyle or what's that, Forrest Gump? I, I'm, yeah. I, I mean, you could make the story and, and write it right from that script of what my life was like in the military. Huh. I did some incredible things that they thought was really neat. The military loved it, sergeants and everybody. They thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And so no interest. The, 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 is this where the fighting ends and then you go to uh, A42 Infantry Training Company? Yeah, A42 um, Can Do Infantry in Fort Worth, California was my next duty assignment for AIT. As I think it's mm -hmm. Advanced Infantry Training. They selected so many people to go there. And then okay. the, another strange thing. Uh, it was really strange because I told you about the marathon runners from California. I didn't know they were marathon runners, but I was kind of laid back. I was dogging it. I really didn't want to go on a 10-mile run, you know. And so I kept letting people pass me until I got to the back where the captain was. And the captain had these white, what's called artillery simulators. They look like flares, but you strike them and you throw them and they blow up, you know, like a half stick of dynamite or something. Mm -hmm. And I said, is anybody behind you? He says, no, and you better be way in front. He says, so then he lights it, throws it, and he throws it at the guy that was in front of me. It blows him up and throws him like 20 feet in front. <laughs> I, I, I was just blown away with what, I says, wow, why'd you do that? Like, I I'm a really innocent dummy, right? Why'd you do that? He says, well, I'm going to do it to you next if you don't start moving. He says, everybody in the mm. back gets it. <laughs> I says, oh, wow. so I, I did the old truck drivers blow the horn, you know, pull the handle down. I says, toot, toot, see you later, you know. Yeah. And I started running like Forrest Gump, you know. And I started picking up some speed. I was passing people one after the other until finally I got to the a point where there was no one up ahead and I was getting lost. I didn't know where the trail went. Ten-mile run in Fort Ord, I don't know where it went to. And I, I wasn't sure what trail to take. So I waited there for these two guys that were in front. And I said, are you guys in front? He says, yep. I, I says, well, I'll run with you. He says, go up ahead if you can run. I was out of sight when I I passed them out of sight. And then so I waited. I, I rode, you know, ran with them for a long time. And they're they're tired, and I'm just not even winded. I didn't have any sweat on me. I didn't. I was in. I was breathing through my nose. Just I was in good health, apparently. And. Uh, so I was playing with them a little bit, making them run faster and slower, just messing with them, you know. Were you a marathon runner like them? No. No, I hated running. And you had no, <laughs> you were breathing through your nose and no sweat. No sweat, yeah. It was really, it was really weird because when we got to the end, uh, I just ran with them to the end. And they were bending over, puking their guts and just gasping for air and and I was talking to him normally, asking him, how you, oh, you okay? You okay? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm breathing through my nose and no sweat anywhere on my body. It's weird. Did man. they, did they react to, to how you look? Oh yeah. They say they were trying to talk and they could hardly talk. And they, 
leave me alone like that. And, you know, like they're really upset. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I pushed them. Well, by, you know, teasing them like that, I pushed them harder than what they should have pushed. And Did it, a high-ranking person notice this new ability that you continue to display? Oh, nobody else was there except us three. And at mm. the end, you know, at the end, and I thought to myself, and then later on, I told you about the chairman of the Joint Chiefs calling me, right? And he knew about that. Oh, t tell us. Tell us about that. Oh, God. It was another thing I, I did weird. The shooting thing. When I went overseas in Germany, I was a photographer. I got the job as a photographer, and I was signed to go somewhere and take some pictures of a shooting of rotting gun club. I went to the wrong place. I went above the bowling alley in, in Freiburg, Germany's uh, base. And the um, the sergeant was Sergeant Louis Agrella. I hope you're still alive, Mr. Agrella. Uh, you were a good guy. Um, he became a, a cop, I think, a sergeant in, down in uh, Houston, Texas. Hell of a nice guy. And he was our shooting coach. And so I went there to take a picture of him. He says, you're, I said, mind if I shoot one of your target pistols, you know, competition pistols? He says, have you ever shot a pistol before? I said, no. And that's the truth. I never shot a pistol before. And so I shot like, I think it was like 245 out of 300. And he went in, called on the phone, called the called the battalion commander, and says, "I think we have a new, you know, shooter." So they put me on as a shooter, as well as my duties as photographer. <laughs> Wait a second, you were not a marathon runner. No, you had to beat all those guys. Yeah, yeah. you beat Chambers. Now, yep. as a photographer, you get lost, and you asked to 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 shoot. Yeah, I shoot a pistol, and I shot like a two forty five the first time, and uh. he, he signed me up. But that's nothing compared to what I shot later after I got. You know, hang of the what after he told me how to shoot better. You know, the coach was great. You never shot before, even at the farm. Never shot a pistol before. No. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of the first Project Vox Populi interview. We have much more of Walt Willis' story in segment two. To listen, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. Walt has a lot more stories and even recommendations for the challenging future he sees ahead of us. He also wants to do his part to help humanity, and will share that with us too. All of this in segment two, in this three-hour interview. And another reminder, if you have an important story to tell, I want to be a Project Vox Populi witness. Write to us at voxpopuli at veritasradio.com. And if you have questions for Walt, join us at the Manticore Forum, where Walt will answer your questions himself. We'll take a quick break, listen to some music, and we'll see you in the member section. The song you will hear next is by David Guetta and Saya, called Titanium. It reminds me of Walt. Enjoy. You shot it
Nothing to lose 